You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. I think I know a lot of you in the room, but for those who don't know me, I am Sara Pantuliano. I'm one of the managing directors at ODI, but more importantly for today, I am the editor-in-chief for Disasters Journal, um, which I've been co-editing for almost 10 years now, eight, nine. Um, but I do with my fantastic colleagues, John Twig over there and Helen Young at the back. You'll see them later during the day. It's such a privilege to celebrate 40 years of the journal. And I think it, what is really great is that this really feels like a family reunion. If I look around this room, there are people that have contributed to the success of disasters over so many years, from the very beginning and the foundations, those who were in their famous um, room in the basement uh, of, I think it was in Regent's Park, everybody Mary tells Le bon. me, Mary Le bon, yes. <laughs> With the London Technical Group, I'm, I'm sure we hear about it. All the way to those who are helping the journal today, from our editorial board to all of you who contribute to the journal. Um, and I really do want to thank everyone, but particularly those who have served on the editorial board over the years and the previous editors. There are a few of them in the room. They're all mentioned in the little booklet you have there. Really an enormous thanks to everyone. But also thanks to Wiley, that is our publisher, and is allowing us to do this today, um, you know, because they've supported the conference and really got excited about celebrating our anniversary. But before I forget, the most important person that all of you, I'm sure, have engaged with, John Nesbitt, who has shouldered such an enormous amount <laughs> to make this happen today, and I want to make sure that he's duly acknowledged. Uh, I've got just a couple of housekeeping things before we start with the exciting agenda for the day. I am told to tell you that if the fire alarm goes off, it's not a drill, it's a real fire. So you're all experienced in managing, preventing, mitigating disasters. Use your best knowledge and head for the exit. Uh, you will see that you have little cards on your table. These are for you to write what you think about the journal, ideas to improve it, just a quote, a testimony, what disasters mean for you, what you like about disasters, what you don't like about disasters. Use it you know, to help us continue to improve or you know, for us to use a quote in the material that we produce. Um, do put your name so we know, um, unless you want to you know, offer uh, some constructive criticism, in which case you can leave it anonymous, no problem. And, and for those of you who are part of the modern age, do tweet. Um, the hashtag is disasters40. There has already been quite a buzz online looking at the virtual issues, looking at you know, the quotes that our editorial board has offered on some of the best articles that disasters has produced. Um, so continue the conversation. We are um, live all day and I actually want to welcome the online audience as well. There's a lot of people that are tuning in to follow the debate today. Um, so you know, an, an enormous... Um, Welcome to them as well, and do feel free to you know, engage, send questions to the chat when the <coughs> panel starts. Just before I hand over to the two you know, fantastic speakers we have to set us off for today, a couple of reflections on why I think disasters is 
so exciting and so special. And I went back, I don't know how many of you have looked at the virtual issues. Um, we, we have some you know, really great contributions in there, but there is particularly you know, one that reflects on the first issue of disasters and why you know disasters is so important because disasters was you know a departure uh, from a focus a scientific <coughs> focus on disasters you know just using a scientific lens to look at um, the management and the causes of disasters and from the very beginning it was there to offer uh, a different disciplinary perspective a political and a social lens that was actually you know really echoing some of what you know, radical geographers in the 70s were calling for, um, but trying to understand what was critical to better address you know, vulnerabilities that people have to disasters risk. And I think we've gone a long way to bring that into academia, into you know, the thinking of a number of policymakers. We've definitely been instrumental in helping that shift. I think we still have a long way to go with the public. If you look at what you know, is happening today, I think there is still um, a, a mainstream discourse on disasters that blames natural phenomena, that you know, really does ignore or you know, to some extent dismisses the underlying factors of vulnerability. So we still got a bit of a job to do to influence the wider debate on disasters. But I think within the policy community, we can be proud of what we have done in shifting you know, the debate and the analysis over the years. And it's not just on natural related hazard disasters, I think we've had a huge influence you know, over the years on our, through our work on famine, on food security, on food crisis, complex political emergencies. Again, bringing that together with the natural hazard um, issues, um, introducing you know, analysis and thinking and research on accountability in uh, humanitarian response. And as you know, John would say, also actually giving attention to some neglected issues. Um, in our in, in our field, um, the journalists pioneer discussions about local people's knowledge in uh, you know mitigating, preventing, and responding to disasters. Um, more recently, we've uh, published a lot of work around mental issues and psychosocial aspects of disasters, and we're starting to publish quite a lot on uh, people with disability and their experience of disasters. So issues that don't normally you know you see that you don't normally see features in other journals. I think we can say proudly that we are the leading journal on disaster studies. And I think just uh, the enthusiasm with which the invitations are sent to the speakers were received is a testimony to that. Everybody was really honored and flattered to be asked and accepted without you know, any, um, um, any delay. We're very proud of the high quality content that we offer the fact that we challenge and encourage policymakers, but we also offer a depth of conceptual and empirical research and analysis that allows us to be agenda setting. We think we have been agenda setting for the last 40 years, and we hope that we will continue to be with your support for the next 40 years. But without further ado, let me introduce uh, Baroness Frances da Sousa, who will kick us off for today. Frances is actually the founding editor of Disasters Journal. You know, she funded, amongst the many things she's funded, and you know, really the parts she's opened in her career, she funded the uh, Relief and Development Institute, which was the first house of disasters. And then you know, the, later on in the 80s, joined with ODI, and that's how disasters ended up in ODI. But Frances can tell us all about the origin of the journal and some reflections on how it has evolved over the years. It's a privilege to have you with us, Francis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
good morning, everyone. I can't tell you how exciting it is to, to be here and to see, I was going to say many, so many old faces, but what, you know what I mean, faces of old. Um, some people I really, really haven't seen for certainly 25 years, if not 35 years. So it's, um, it's very wonderful. Everyone's worn very well, and they're all sort of, you know, doing what they should be doing. So uh, it's, it's, it's good to be here. And so who would have thought it, you know, that we're 40 years? Um, cast your mind back, cast your minds back 40 years to this damp and crumbling basement in what is now hugely fashionable Marylebone. Um, we had two rooms, one without any natural light and four desks, the other a sort of narrow corridor, and this was the International Disaster Institute, which grew out of the London Technical Group. The journal Disasters had just been published by Pergamon Press, and I remember, remember almost the first publicity we had was in Private Eye, who printed our title, Disasters, and underneath it, patron Robert Maxwell. <laughs> and for, I mean, obviously, for, you know, there are a lot of you here who are too young to remember you know, how pernicious and, uh, uh, Robert Maxwell was. But nevertheless, he was flying the flag. He published the journal. Um, I remember, too, in those very early days, some efforts to design a logo for what we call the International Disaster Institute. And one suggestion was the image of a Noah's Ark sinking. Um, so how did it all begin? Actually, with a group of very unlikely lads who came together, I suspect, with the encouragement of John Rivers, still very sadly missed, to use what they felt to be an unbelievably privileged education by world standards to make the lot of mankind better. Uh, John Rivers was a nutritionist, uh, John Seaman, a doctor, Julius Holt, an anthropologist, John Merlis, an engineer, Mark Bowden, uh, a social scientist. And this coming together coincided with the Andhra Pradesh cyclone of 1977, which some of you here will, will, will remember. Out some of them went, and to cut a long and untidy story short, they discovered a sea of well-meaning incompetence of the wrong age going to the wrong people at the wrong time. And so began a war with the aid agencies uh, as this group, which was very loose-knit and, and somewhat Johnny-come-lately, um, and welcomed all comers, which attempted to apply scientific method to what they perceived as the continuation of the Victorian poor law. You feed the hungry and you tend the sick, and it's their fecklessness fault or their feckless fault if they don't immediately benefit from such largesse. The journal Disasters was the vehicle for this research. So we became a body, the International Disaster Institute at that time, or as my children used to refer to it as the IUD. People came to work in our truly awful office. John Rivers was a fellow at the Nuffield Institute of Comparative Medicine, John Seaman did night locum work. I was lecturing and doing adult education because uh, none of us had salaries and we had uh, no money at all. Then we began to get very, very small grants, um, first from the Barrow and Geraldine Cadbury Trust, bless them, who believed in what we were trying to do, and then from an eccentric patron who wanted us to do a study of potential Thames flooding, which we did, and Sally Leavesley is here, who actually did that study with us. We were a very odd group. One memory I have is when at long last, 
we managed to get a meeting with a relevant minister at the time. And the day, I know this is, this is big news. I mean, they were going to, they were going to, the minister was actually going to talk with us, motley group. And the day arrived, and Julius turned up in tennis shoes because he said he couldn't find his shoes. And in those days, you arrive in sort of what we now call trainers. It was not quite the thing when you were meeting with the, the minister. And John Seaman, I'm sure this can't be true, but I do remember it, um, managed to tear his trousers. And, I, he, and he had to depart at the end of the meeting backwards to protect his <laughs> modesty. <laughs> and that's in a way kind of summed us up, you know. We, were, we, we, we weren't all that slick and professional, but we were very well-meaning and quite angry, actually. A lot of us were quite angry. 1979 was the huge boat people refugee crisis. We focused on refugees in camps and documented their needs while observing some appalling decisions that were made at that time. Sophisticated drugs, including, for example, oxytocin, to makeshift Burmese refugee camps in Thailand. And this was in 1978. I think it was in 1978. Um, I mean, plus a change. The same thing is happening today. But as was explained, and indeed was explained to some of the major age agencies there, that, you know, unless these drugs are administered by people uh, who really knew what they're doing, they could be extraordinarily dangerous. Um, evening dresses to the survivors of the 1980 South Italian earthquake, dubious Tylenol painkillers to refugees in Pakistan's refugee camps. I remember working in um, Pakistan, just this uh, Pakistan side of the Afghan border, uh, in 1981. And uh, it was at the time when the, there'd been a huge um, scandal about Tylenol uh, pain-killing uh, drugs for manufactured in America were uh, was, was suspect. They were poisoned. They were they were they were duff anyhow. And I remember sort of crawling around sort of warehouses, looking at these you know cases and cases and cases of aid that were kept arriving and finding these Tylenol and taking their, their sort of uh, their date and their, their manufacturing number and finding out later that these were the drugs that had been um, banned in in the USA. So the list of absurdity was long, and uh, IDI was, was really not shy of broadcasting such major errors. We came up with what was, I think at the time, the first comprehensive refugee camp manual, which included practical uh, evidence-based texts on issues ranging from sanitation, temporary shelters, triage, primary health care, acute interventions, uh, and included also uh, negotiating with the UN and with, with, with governments. The result was that we were hated and feared in equal measure by most of the aid agencies, other than Save the Children, then under the overseas director of, again, sadly missed, Hugh Mackay, a remarkable man who recognised what it was that IDR was trying to do, and he supported us in whatever way he could, even employing John Seaman, for the next couple of decades and attempting to implement much of what our research had shown. I think that the main contribution that IDI made in those early days was in the area of documenting the early indicators of famine. I leave the hugely important topic of uh, earthquakes and buildings to my distinguished colleague, um, Ian Davis, who's going to speak uh, next. Famine, too often regarded as a natural disaster, was it turned out largely due to the exponential increase in food prices. 
It is now acknowledged that famine has a long lead in time during which the price of stables increase, the sales of assets increase, and ultimately when the gap between the two becomes unmanageable, people begin to move in large numbers to feeding camps or feeding stations where they too often died due to disease and lack of resources. The research that IDI did offered a way of intervening to stabilize markets and thereby limit grain hoarding and price hikes. Amartya Sen was working on his seminal thesis at that time, but as far as I know, didn't have the on-the-ground data to demonstrate his theory. John Seaman, Julius Holt, and John Rivers did from work in the 1970s and 80s in Ethiopia and the records of the Irish potato famine and the Great Bengal famines. The theory of market prices has since been tested around the world. I did so in Afghanistan following the Soviet occupation in 1980. It's now accepted knowledge and, where possible, has led to early intervention to prevent famine or at least control market prices. Today, <coughs> there are many, many disaster research centres, some of them represented here, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, they stretch from the Antipodes to the Nordic countries. And, of course, we're not short of disasters. Uh, think of the devastating earthquake in Nepal, Hurricane Katrina, and, of course, the catastrophic floods we see in the southern states of the USA today. In the UK, there is now even talk of appointing an independent advocate in cases of public disaster. That may well have happened, that perhaps Sally can tell us in due course. Uh, but it's interesting that this is something now which is, is, is very much mainstream, and I have to say it really wasn't mainstream when us, 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 us sort of torn trousers and tennis shoes people uh, were trying to, to, to do the research. The journal Disasters published the results of serious far-reaching research, which has, I think, had a profound effect on the practice and documentation of emergency relief work. I don't think it's ever been sufficiently acknowledged. The pages of disasters over the last 40 years are a clear and courageous reminder of that. So, my friends and colleagues, what began as a part-time commitment by a few remarkable people has endured and has made a difference and let me say just once again, I'm so delighted and honoured to be here to join in this celebration and to get together with all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francis, for taking us back to those beginnings, but really also helping us understand how it all came about and how pioneering you and the London Technical Group and everybody who was involved were. Um, the beginnings and you know, disasters have been a fantastic foundation for the work that the journal has done over the last 40 years. Um, but let me now turn to Ian Davis, who has been uh, already you know, mentioned by Francis while they were doing the politics and the family and the food security. There was somebody that was continuing to do a lot of incredible scholarship on you know, the, the natural hazard side of disasters. Ian, you've produced an, an amazing array of you know, research over the years. I don't know, 16 books, 90 articles, a uh, you know, very <laughs> challenging sort of bar for any of us. Thank you so much for accepting to do the keynote today. Thank you. Well, what a fantastic pleasure to be here. As uh, soon as I got this invitation, I just jumped at it because I knew I'd meet lots of people I've known over the years. 
And uh, I just wanted to congratulate all these long-suffering editors, editorial boards, people who've reviewed articles, having their arms twisted behind them, uh, and all voluntary work, most of it, to keep this show on the road and make a fantastic contribution to the subject. I mean, it's an amazing uh, achievement, and, and uh, just thanks for all of that. And thanks so much for inviting me to come here and for being here. Uh, there's a little book of CVs in there. I, I discovered a couple of days ago that uh, something I left out of my CV was the fact that I worked for two architects in my architectural career. One was Minori Yamasaki in Detroit, who designed the Twin Towers. And then when I came back to England, I worked for Clifford Weirden, who designed Grenfell Tower. So <laughs> I've got to I, I cheerfully leave that off my CV. Um, in the, in the early 1970s, it was a kind of fairly amateur business, this whole thing, as you probably gather. And I, I started research on shelter in 1972 at UCL. And I assumed there'd be hundreds of people working in the field. There was just a handful of us, really. And, uh, and it, was, it was a bit of a salutary realization that, that how, how small this field was and how incredibly amateurish it was. Uh, I was immediately caught up with quests for the universal shelter, the shelter that would solve the world's problems. And uh, Oxfam were in, in designing hexagonal polyurethane units, which they tried out in Turkey. The Red Cross with the biochemical company were designing round igloos, which they put into Peru and Nicaragua, uh, and also Turkey. And um, the, the Andro, one of the, the ancestor of UN Ocha, or the descent ancestor, that's right, they, they wanted a universal shelter and wanted me to help design it. And so did ODA, which was the ancestor of DFID. So it was a kind of chaotic world, and I was busy doing a UN project with Fred Cuny and Fred Crimgold and a few other good friends, and, and we were realizing that this was the wrong tack altogether. It had to be process. We had to talk about sheltering rather than shelter. So we started research on it. And in that sort of situation, somebody called Sandra Singer, who worked for the Red Cross, British Red Cross, she said, would I come and speak at a seminar in Belgravia to talk about um, uh, shelter, what we discovered? I said, yes, of course, and I gave my talk. And as it, as it ended, John Merlis, who's here, and also Mark Bowden, and I think John Rivers came up to me. And they were very enthusiastic because they were caught, they said, we're the London Technical Group, and we are going to start a journal with uh, the help of that man of science and letters, Robert Maxwell. And, and they were going to actually produce this magazine, and could my, could my article be in the first issue? And I said, well, great. No, no peer reviews, no citation indexes in those <laughs> halcyon days. It just was a quick deal. And uh, sure enough, it got in the first issue. And there was a wonderful editorial in that first issue by John Seaman. Is John here? Yes. Oh, there he is. <laughs> John, let me quote you. We hope the journal will cease its publication as soon as possible. When there are no more catastrophes, we will have to cease publication. Our closure is hopefully much more imminent than realizable. We shall cease publication when there is no further role for scientists in disaster relief. Well, uh, a few, few weeks ago, uh, David Alexander, who's here, wrote to me saying, John Seaman wrote in an opening editorial that he wanted to see the day when disaster's journal would no longer exist because there would be no need for it at the moment. 
the reverse is true. It's needed more than ever, and he's quite right. We're all watching this litany of events happening at the moment, which is really scary. Anyway, I got this lovely brief from Sarah to detail the evolving nature of disaster studies over the past 40 years, noting the significant milestones, well, that's bad enough, hard enough, as well as their outcomes, probably impossible, ideally with reference to the role the journal has played, totally impossible. How do, we, how do we know what role the journals played? So I'm happy to talk about some of the evolving nature of disaster studies and happy to refer to my take on some of the milestones. But as for the outcomes, I think that's difficult because it's cumulative. What makes progress is, is all sorts of circumstances, articles, books, people, disaster events, etc. By the way, it's pretty wonderful to come to a conference where there's no PowerPoint. This must be the first conference I've ever been to where someone said, don't bring a PowerPoint, having half-prepared one. So that's, that's great. In the 1970s, there were many assumptions around, and I won't go through them. They're in a paper, which is on some of the tables, and you can read them at your leisure. But I think it was a very optimistic period. There was a general belief that things could be done and that we could make things happen. And there was a great deal of uh, trust the cynical age was, was to come much later. There had been some very big uh, thinkers working in development. Fritz Schumacher, John Turner, Paolo Freire, even Illich. So it wasn't short of, of theoretical frameworks. That was, that was underpinning a lot of this. But, but being on the board of Tierfund, and later we formed Tradecraft, I realized that there was a tremendous spirit of can-do great deal of confidence, but also the assumption that good intentions are bound to equal good results. That was very evident, and, and criticism was not welcomed at all. John Seaman and I were hauled up before Oxfam for writing something or contributing something in the Sunday Times, and we were told on un uncertain terms that if we didn't retract it, we'd do no more work for Oxfam. I've never done any work for Oxfam ever since. So they, helped, they kept to that trust. But they, criticism was really uh, objected to very strongly. It wasn't helped by John saying that uh, uh, age, talked about agency-induced deaths in his article in the Sunday Times. Do you, do you recall that, John? Anyway, I'd I just like to just really depart from my script, because this was written uh, before I, uh, it's a draft that you've got in front of you. And I've been working on it since. I had an accident, dislocated my thumb, and took me into hospital. So I, I carried on working on this thing, and I, I will eventually be revising that draft. If we look at the 70s, confidence, a big product emphasis, a big donor focus on we can do things, and I think there was basically a control approach, maybe coming out of many of the military people working in disasters, uh, maybe coming from colonial officers working in disasters, but a tremendous emphasis on we can do it. Compare that with now. Much more of a process of emphasis. Shelter replaced by the word sheltering. Uh, there's a lot more doubt and cynicism, a lot more questioning. Uh, there's a lot more desire for integration. And uh, there's, a, there's a huge emphasis on self-reliance right across the board. And I think trust is certainly evident to a degree it wasn't present in the 70s. For example, cash grants is an example of trust. In the 70s, it was always in-kind grants. So we're in, a, we're in a very different kind of era. And, it, and I'll just explain some of the big influences on change that have happened. 
I, I've, I've listed just seven of them. First, population growth. 4.1 billion in 1977, 7.2 billion now. That's seven for every four when this journal started. Almost doubling. Well, if you want an explanation for high levels of disasters, you don't have to look too much further. Particularly where you see something like 73,000 killed in Pakistan, one of these countries with a, a rapid tra trajectory population growth. Urbanization is running at a colossal level. The tipping point came in 2006 where it equaled urban and rural, and now we've got a, a, a huge migrationary process to towns, and that's affecting disasters like Kathmandu earthquake. It affected uh, Haiti earthquake tremendously. People moving to towns, cities, having to live on awful land, steep slopes, floodplains, and all the rest of it, and facing the conse consequences. Climate change, what a fantastically important process. But it wasn't thought about in 77. It, it wasn't until 85 that we started getting the articles, and 86, the IPCC was formed. I was writing, uh, I was looking up the Yokohama Conference of 1994, and I wrote a report on it in Disasters with Mary Myers. And uh, I looked up the report. There's no reference to the internet in that conference. And the answer was that people weren't using the internet. So what we've seen since 94 to now is this complete explosion. And it means that knowledge is accessible in a way that was completely unprecedented. It used to take me nearly three weeks to get a piece of information. I used to have to go to libraries. I even traveled to Boulder, Colorado to get some information. Now I could get it in a quarter of an hour with Google. But of course, you lose something in that rapid process. You lose that, all the accidental things you find by having to do it with your own legwork. Mobile phone technology. I mean, what started as a kind of extraordinarily expensive process has become accessible to just about everybody. And working in Haiti to find out that 96% of the population, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, have got mobile phones. Astonishing. And then we saw research which indicated that they could track where people have gone. So we got the first piece of evidence about host families because they tracked where people had gone to to stay with other people. And uh, that's the first time we ever knew how many people went and where they went and how long they stayed there. So we've, the mobile phone also is bringing direct warnings. When I was in Gujarat earlier this year, uh, they said the big change is that all the flood warnings are coming on people's mobile phones. So in future, they're going to get the warnings as soon as possible. It's not just Los Angeles that gets mobile phone warnings. happening in Gujarat, happening in India. Space technology, and of course that has produced warning systems. And that is why disaster casualties have been so dramatically cut. Uh, this current crop of hurricanes in the Caribbean and Florida, that would have accounted for phenomenal deaths 20 or 30 years ago. And in India, they're so proud of the fact that now when they look at Orissa, they can compare hurricanes or cyclones as they call them in the 70s and what's happening now. And they've cut it dramatically, by, particularly by better evacuation planning. I suppose one of the big influences on the major influence has been these huge mega events, the tsunami. When, when the Guatemala earthquake happened in 76, and we commented on it in that first issue of Disasters, there were 22,000 deaths. And I remember a conference that John organized at the Royal Society, and we all lamented this. And we brought over Henry Quarantelli for the meeting. Nick Ambrosius gave the keynote talk, and he said, 
today's act of God will be tomorrow's act of criminal negligence. And we all thought 22,000, that's absolutely appalling. Well, the tsunami, 222, I think 279,000, going up by a factor of 10. Then there was Katrina. So showing that really, it, that even a country as advanced as the US could make a dreadful mess of disaster planning. And when Cuba offered to help, it was a pretty valid response. And then we compared, say, two disasters in quick succession, Haiti followed by Chile. And the contrast is really extraordinary of how, of how appalling the Haiti situation was and how brilliant the Chilean recovery was. So I just to perhaps talk about a few milestones. I better just keep going. And I thought of a few key words just to sort of bombard you with uh, and how words have changed. So for example, Fred Krimgold wrote a PhD on shelter in 1972 in Sweden, and he called it disaster prevention. That was a popular word in the 1970s. Idealistic, a dream. Nobody can prevent. Just imagine this hurricane we've just seen. The, the, the shape of it is the same as the UK. You don't prevent things like that. The least you can hope to do is to mitigate them. And that was the next word, mitigation. Favorite word in the 80s. To be replaced by DRR, disaster risk reduction. Um, and, and there we had optimistic people saying, we'll stop these big floods in Bangladesh with concrete. Uh, Mitterrand's wife got her feet a bit wet and there was a huge uh, French policy on trying to put, put these rivers in concrete boxes. And then people said, hold on a minute, this isn't going to work. We have to do something called living with floods, adaptation. And they replaced that uh, idealistic notion of prevention with mitigation, reduced risks, but let's live with it. And then we had IDNDR, the International Decade for Natural Disaster Reduction in the 90s. I slaved away on the British Committee for nine years. John and others were part of that. John Twig and others were part of that endeavor. And we worked our socks off to try and improve things. Uh, and that led to a UN organization called UNISDR being formed. And, uh, and it, the, the, a succession of UN conferences, Yokohama, 94, Kobe, 2005, Sendai, 2015, and they had a big effect, Japanese sponsorship. And, a, and, and there was a big word coming in called resilience. Everybody loved the word resilience. They pinched it from the engineering community, and it, it had some good aspects to it, and it still has. And John wrote a seminal study of it, which is so useful. Um, first of all, uh, <coughs> absorbing shocks and bouncing back. Bouncing back was good because that brought together the emergency management people and the, and the risk reduction people and change and adaptation. Resilience has got many nuances, but it became the favorite word all over the place and organizations were called it and it, you almost got sick of the sound of it. And in fact, uh, in the university where I was teaching, I'm always banned students from using the word, trying to sort of get some, get some other words going. <coughs> There were two communities developing, the climate change community and the risk reduction community, and a project was devised to bring them both together, and about 140 of us were, were put together in Panama and Australia and uh, wherever we met, all sorts of exotic places, and we tried to understand each other's languages. 
the climate change people by mitigation meant cutting carbon. We meant uh, building safe earthquake-resistant houses. It was, it was, the terminology was different. But we, we labored away on that, and it was an exciting venture, but I'm not sure if anything much was achieved by it. But out of, out of that process came CCA, Climate Change Adaptation. And that was difficult because that wasn't just risk reduction because part of ad adaptation to climate change was planting vineyards in Yorkshire uh, or changing the apple crop in, in Gujarat or, or, or um, Punjab, Gra grabbing some of the good things of climate change as well as all the horrific things. And maybe the last word on that litany is building a safety culture. The terminology is changing from prevention to building a safety culture. Now, if we look at famine and relief, and Francis has alluded to it, I, that's not my field, but it's been interesting to see how famine relief, early days, 60s, 70s, is now productive safety nets. And food security has become a major business, and one of the big achievements of Disasters Journal and the IDI and uh, the ODI, ODI and so on has been these big developments in my, my son-in-law, who works for DFID, has done extremely interesting work in Kenya and Ethiopia on, on, these, uh, on these packages for productive safety nets, really anticipating disasters, working way ahead, looking at the whole economic base of them. And if we look at emergency management, how have the words changed there? First of all, from relief and disaster planning, response, preparedness, a name pinched from the military, to emergency management and disaster risk management, which was replaced by, sorry, disaster management replaced by disaster risk management, a slightly bigger concept, and then resilience again, and then recovery management. <coughs> what, are, what are my main concerns in all this? Well, I think that uh, we need a lot more humility. I think I've come to realize that we're just a club, really, a very nice club of people working in disasters. But there are plenty of people working in risk reduction who are not in our club. Uh, earthquake engineers, for example. I've been to three world conferences, 4,500 of them, 700 coming from Japan. There's no reference to the UN, no reference to Sendai Conference, no reference to targets. They just get on with the job. They're not doing much on low-cost housing. It's concrete and high-rise, but nevertheless making a significant impact. All the people doing with work on river catchments. This is, these, are the real, these are the real integrators. These are the real mainstreamers. A river catchment looking together at pollution control, land drainage, water supply, navigation, uh, sewage, flood control flood interwoven into a whole package of things. They're not at these conferences on disasters. They're, they have their own, their own community. They do their own work. But it's, uh, it's, another, it's another sector of life. And, uh, and so we've got these other fields of people who are working on it who are not part of this club. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. We need, more, need a bit more humility. I think there's still a lot of donor-driven work, and that's a big concern. For example, in the field I work in, in housing, I'm quite convinced that housing begins with a bit of plastic sheeting after an earthquake and ends with a, somebody living in a house somewhere. It's a continuum. But the agencies don't wish to get involved in housing. It's too sexy, it's too difficult, it's politically 
complicated and it's very expensive. So they cherry pick and they'll look at the first phase, shelter, or they'll look at transition housing. Ah, oh, that's the answer. That will get rid of a lot of money. And so the money is being poured into an area which is really when it should be in the final phase. And they don't look at the whole picture because they don't choose to. So, so you get a donor-driven response, and if you go to Haiti or Kathmandu, you can start seeing that kind of process at work. <coughs> I'm, I'm very sad to see the way reinvention has to, is not happening. I had a conference this week with some people from an agency, which I won't mention, who are doing work on building for safety. And Yasmin and I and others worked on a project in the 90s on that, and, and Charles is involved with it now as they're redoing it. But these people working on it had no knowledge at all of the previous literature. In fact, they're, they're, they, one of them said, I don't know the literature after 2007, before 2007. And so this is a real problem. How do you get, how do you keep the knowledge flowing back to people who have got, who, who are new to the subject or who haven't got um, that, that background? Another big concern is, the, is fashion. Training was a great fashion in the 90s. And uh, I remember in Tierfan, we had training going all over the place, and we appointed a person for it, and we developed guidelines. And then suddenly that person left, and with, with him, the subject left. And we, uh, they haven't had disaster management training of any real sort since, as far as I know. Nothing like the scale of it. And so you can have a whole project which is one person deep, fashion and that is very dangerous it means the UN did the same with their training program called DMTP which was for UN officials that died to death <coughs> but one and one concern is that we've got wonderful organizations like ODI and ALNAP producing information but how to get that information to the people who need it and so often people are desperately in need of information but are not quite sure how to find it you can be the go-between so there are some of the concerns about the community, but there are also concerns about the subject. And one is urban risk. Urban risk growing at a phenomenal speed. Haiti, Katrina, uh, Kathmandu, Sierra Leone. And, uh, and I think that's one of the most complicated areas to work in. And agencies have notoriously always wanted to work more in rural areas than in very, very complicated urban centers. Population movement on an unprecedented scale, and if this group come together 40 years from now, I won't be part of that group uh, for obvious reasons, uh, but if they come together, there's going to be big discussion about this urban, this, this movement of people, which is going to happen uh, not just because of climate change, because of ethnic cleansing, because of economic migration and so on. And how are we going to manage it, and how is Britain and how is Denmark and how is Norway and Germany going to receive these colossal hordes of people who are having to move because of all sorts of pressures? I think the cultural barriers to progress remain a colossal challenge. Uh, I was privileged to talk to about 350 school teachers in India. They're all teaching disasters in their schools. And they have a big curriculum and it's a huge achievement. They, they have classes every two weeks on it. And I said to them, what is the main focus of your work? They said, flood. I said, how many of you can swim? And the answer was about uh, a third of them could swim. And I don't think any of the women could swim. And most of the school teachers were women. And they said, 
it's difficult for women to learn to swim here, you know, it's very hard. And yet swimming would be a kind of key process. <clears throat> I'm just going to finish by a bit of upbeat stuff on progress. And I, I'll just refer you to the paper for some wonderful comments from the different um, editors who've written some material. You can look through that at your leisure. First of all, risks have been greatly reduced, as I mentioned. Uh, I'm very excited about the way staff are being moved around. I never thought this would happen, but a friend of mine, Maggie Stevenson, she works in, in Thailand after the, uh, after, the, after the tsunami. She goes to Pakistan with UN Habitat, taking that information. She's moved from Pakistan to Haiti, where she's planted in the government. I've floated around these countries, but never planted in government to work with them on it. So then she's in Haiti, and then she goes from Haiti to Kathmandu, and she's taking knowledge with her. Then I met Indian IAS, Indian Administrative Service people, who are being moved around. Disaster experience in Andhra, moved to Orissa, moved to Gujarat, and they started to share experiences. That's wonderful, wonderful to think that people have, the penny has dropped. After Sendai, people from Kobe being brought into Sendai to teach and to help. Really great. Technology, I've mentioned phones, I've mentioned warnings and public awareness growing, growing all the time. And Marcus has done phenomenal work with the, with the NGO community on building up that whole process. And uh, when Mary Myers and I went to the Yokohama conference in 94, there were hardly any NGOs there, maybe about 30. I don't know how many there were in Sendai, Marcus, but thousands. That's amazing, yeah, fantastic achievement. Um, so lots of progress. And uh, I, I just finished, because my time's gone, by, by just uh, a little wish list for disasters for the future. Um, I would like it to go back in some ways to where it was. I would love to see Disasters Journal uh, being the, setting the gold standard, which it does for the future. And I would love to see it, in fact, uh, where is it? I can't find the page. Um, it, it has in it, every time, an editorial maybe by a guest, guiding people, directing them. There are reports in every article as well as peer-reviewed papers. David Alexander said that sense of being part journal and part magazine that was common to many journals 40 years ago has gone. There are no more conference reports, book reviews, and announcements as the space is needed for articles. Why? Why should it be? Why should we just have a diet of indigestible, peer-reviewed articles? So we need editorials, we need reports, we need key material, state-of-the-art papers, commissioned papers, oh, and we need letters to the editor, and every person who drops off this planet needs a good obituary. Every person who's key on it. I've written a couple for disasters, so I know they do them, but there are quite a few names who never got them. Why not? And so, and letters to the editor. I'd, lo I'd love to see disasters not just following editorial pressure from publishers or from academia just to fill it with uh, peer-reviewed stuff, but also to go back to providing that vital source of information to everybody because it's got a very, very wide readership. And that, I think, should end my talk. It's been lovely to share with you every, all these issues, and, and I will be revising that paper. But if you want to read what the editors think about um, this subject, disasters, read the paper. And also, at the end of it, there's, I've chosen 42 
bits of writing over the last uh, 40 years, which I think have been significant. I missed, I missed because I'd given away all my journals to Oxford Brooks. I missed all these lovely things which have been produced by your editorial board where each one has selected an article. Wonderful. I'm going to add those to the list. But if anybody wants to come back to me over my list of 42 and start putting in the journals, which I've missed because they'd all gone, uh, I'd love to try and get a, a list together of some of the bits that have been, books that have been really helpful. But uh, mine are biased and some will need kicking out and others need to be added. And I'm sure there are many indignant people in the room that I've forgotten to put in your prized bit of work. Sorry about that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Yeah, come back here because we've got 15 minutes for questions. I'm sure there'll be you know, questions and comments. I mean, thanks for, this has been incredible, such a, you know, um, uh, taking us through the changes in, in the field and yes, and, and pushing us. I really, I really take seriously what you said at the end. It's true, we do succumb to editorial pressures, well, publishing pressures, and it's a good reflection yeah. about where we should be going and what we should be doing. I'm sure, you know, John, Ellen, and I, we do a, a lot of thinking yeah, after the, the conference. That, that's a great sure. exhortation. Thanks. And there is a virtual issue with 30 articles, really? actually, yeah. online, um, which includes some of those that you've mentioned in the quotes, but there are many more. But please, stay here. Um, there'll be ro roving microphones. Um, for anyone to want to ask a question or add a comment. I can see already, David, you, you can manage yeah, that. Yeah. We've got about 15 minutes before the break. It's on. Okay, sorry, thanks. Um, I just wanted to add something to what Francis said, first and foremost. When um, Disasters was run by the International Disaster Institute, actually, the temple, the editorial temple, was actually a very narrow door between, on the one side, the headquarters of the Intermediate Technology Group, and on the other side, a boutique called Rich Bitch. <laughs> which was always very ironically received. And, uh, another thing about the layout inside is that, yes, there were two rooms, but when we wanted some real inspiration other than that which we very obviously got from Francis, we had to go to the outside toilet where, chained to the wall, there was a copy of Frank Muir's autobiography. <laughs> However, uh, more, more seriously than that, um, if you look at the way things have gone in disaster studies, there has been a huge increase in hazard studies and a relatively smaller increase in vulnerability studies. One effect of this, I'm afraid, and I, I'm, I'm going to speak very frankly here, is that, quite honestly, the hazard studies are not solving the problem. And that is because these are human problems in which vulnerability is essentially the essence of, of disasters, of disaster. Well, Disasters Journal, I think, has always championed the vulnerability approach. And therefore, in many respects, this is one reason why it has more to say than many other journals do, and why if it is listened to, then positive change is more likely than the cohorts of well-funded people who are doing studies to improve refinements in earthquake prediction or flood prediction or things like that. 
So vulnerability is the key, but disasters are always one of the journals where you can learn more about vulnerability than from many of the other 84 journals that now are primarily focused on disasters, or 530 or so, and this is a very rough estimate that have disasters papers in them. Thank you very much. Elan Kelman from UCL. And this has been absolutely wonderful, so insightful, so educational, so helpful, particularly from the historical perspective. As Ian mentioned, we can now go online, download these papers from the 70s, and I do and read them and find this could have been read yesterday, or written yesterday, mm. because there really hasn't been a lot of progress in many ways. So with JC Galliard and a few colleagues, we've been trying to capture the documentation which is not online, not formally published. I've set up a page of disaster archives with many scans. I was devastated to discover that the journal Mass Emergencies, which used to have the full text online from the 70s and 80s, the website has disappeared. I don't know who had that website, who owned it, who was managing it, but that may now be gone. So as I've been tweeting my question to Ian, to all of us, including John Merlis, who I think was here, and who I said I really have to get to his garage at some point and go through the archives, how do we capture the DMTP? How do we capture your notes? How do we capture the speeches that we've just heard with this wonderful, exciting information on the International Disaster Institute and the material which I would never know about, the stories I would never hear? Because so much has changed, and so little has changed. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, th I think, I mean, you know, it's great what you've been doing. And I love the fact that you, you excavated the paper that Phil O'Keefe and Ken Westgate had done on vulnerability from Bradford, when J Jim Lewis and the others, those early studies, it was Ben as well, I think. Where's Ben? That was, you were, where's Ben? I can't find him. Ben, you were one of the authors of that piece, I think. That was when the early, those early vulnerability. I mean, one of the problems is, how, how, maybe back to you, Ben, is if people don't have the appetite to dig back on it, how are we going to get some of those lessons? It's as if the wheel has to be reinvented by them or by a new person, as if they personally have to go down the same route uh, without realizing that that work has been done. I'm very concerned, for example, that these new Building for Safety project, which Charles and Bill Flynn and others are involved with, is simply going to state some of the same ground. And I said to these people who are doing it now, I said, you've got to learn that there were limitations there. For example, we focused on builders and craftsmen in that series. We didn't focus on the users of buildings because they're the ones who often modify a building and make it unsafe when it was safe to start with. They demolish the sheer wall, which stops the building collapsing. They've taken out the triangulation in the bamboo, which stops a wind building from falling. So how, how on earth do you keep, keep knowledge alive and how do you encourage a learning culture, Ben? <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ian. Um, I've actually been uh, running back and forth with Maureen Fordham and uh, Terry Cannon about this and uh, 
Terry and, and David Alexander and, and others uh, are keen to relaunch and revitalize uh, uh, a Radix as a, as a website. It's a, uh, it's, it's a reasonably active discussion platform now, but uh, the, uh, the website we started in 2001 is more or less a, uh, an archive now. It's not really active. And I think in the context of these uh, specific conversations about uh, a group that meets in London called the Curry Club, but also sort of expanding that and, and, and drafting a sort of manifesto that would uh, <coughs> talk about um, um, radix um, as, a, as, a, as a process, yeah, a radix group. Um, the, the broader question was exactly this. Uh, how does one reproduce consciousness, you know, in the next generation? I mean, that that actually or, you know, divides multiply into lots of different aspects. I mean, one is uh, teaching at the at the secondary school and the in the undergraduate and the professional training level, and that just has to be done. It's kind of you know grunt grunt work uh, and making sure that people do teach classics. Um, in this in this field, um, but I think the other is to do with um, the users as well as the policymakers, and I think there I think media is very important. And uh, I've written a bit over the years uh, with Tim uh, um, Radford, who was the uh, science editor of the Guardian for a, a while, about um, developing relationships with. On, with digital and, and, and print media folks mm. and actually providing resources to them but actually <coughs> learning their worlds back and forth mm. and making sure that uh, there is a sort of, not, not just when things like the floods in Houston or tsunami or the, the Haiti earthquake take place but um, more or less constantly there is an attempt to talk about vulnerability, to talk about the creation of risk. There's a tremendous amount of finance capital surging about the planet now, and a lot of it going into uh, urban development of one kind or another, whether gentrification or, I mean, the, Wall Street actually, those banks are the largest single uh, realtors uh, landlords of rental properties in the United States now because of the defaults and so forth and, and the changing in, in the residential uh, behavior after the big uh, financial crisis in the mid-2000s. So how do we actually continue to talk about risk creation by people who actually should know better, mm. right? Um, I think that uh, um, the third thing we have to do actually is link up more broadly with social movements. Um, Naomi Klein's uh, recent book, uh, No is Not Enough, actually talks a good deal about, uh, I mean, her work is probably better known, uh, she wrote about the shock doctrine and about the use of Katrina and other shocks to actually then push through uh, policies that favor very narrow economic interests. 
but going on from that, she's talking about the response to all of that and the resistance to that, uh, particularly in this period of the Trump presidency. So I think the three things uh, are, are, are needed in response to your question. Uh, really redoubling our, our, our efforts in various sorts of teaching uh, formats, even though it's, you know, it's a lot of it is drudgery, just teaching undergraduates. Uh, but also work particularly with the media. And I think online media is important. A lot of really, really, a dozen really interesting articles have come out in the last month or two uh, on this online, this online jur um, uh, um, journal called uh, The Conversation. I mean, they, they, take, they take serious academic research and they work with these authors. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, JC and 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 uh, and Elon have been involved in some of your others, perhaps as well. There's been a very one, good one um, on the Grenfell Towers, uh, another on floods in Houston, and so forth. And they present it in a kind of lively and readable way, with hot links that can get you to sources, but it's not kind of overburdened with academic uh, conventions. So, so I think there's a this this we have a lot of potential as long as. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, st I did my PhD, my, my PhD archival research in the old British library on one of the blue um, leather chairs. I like to pretend to myself that I was placing my buttocks where Karl Marx might have sat. <laughs> and they had, a, they had a card index. They had a card index that had actual cards in it. And I was taking notes on yellow paper with a pencil. So if I can get my head around blogs and, and on, you know, and, and digital journalism, then I think we all can. And I think we really need to move in that direction in Thanks. order to make that kind of communication yeah. that you're talking about. Thanks, Ben. Really excellent contribution. I'll impromptu. Thank you. Yes, Charles. Then, then John. <coughs> Centre for Development and Emergency Practice, Oxford Brookes University, and we do do some of this uh, grunt work, which is what you're saying, which is uh, talking to the students, and Ian uh, comes in and talks to the students, and that is, and they're always incredibly um, interested in the sessions that Ian does, and that is one of the ways in which Ian can tell the stories to the new next generation of humanitarian practitioners who are coming through, and other people in this room, of course, come and talk as well, and that's and they are they are very keen to reflect on on the past. I find mm. uh, when when they come in, they're very keen to understand what what has happened. But and and they're just a very small number. But and one of the things that I'm currently doing is reaching out to more practitioners, and the practitioners that are in the field, they are very receptive to yeah. reflecting on their own work and understanding theories that have gone before. And that's a really and and I'm one of the the initiatives that I'm trying to push forward is is to be able to work with them to produce good research. And of course, one of the things that, that's one of the things that Disasters has done, and one of the things, one of the key building blocks of good research is to understand the research that's gone before. Yeah. And Thank you. then we can dig into the archives. Yeah. Thank you. John. <clears throat> well, I thought I ought to say something, just to get my voice heard. Um, uh, yeah, look, this is really to raise a question about, uh, not to dispute any of the things that have been said, but to, to raise a question about the audience for all this information and 
uh, knowledge that's been accumulated over the last few decades. And it first struck me, you mentioned the 68 Bangladesh cyclone? Yes. Killed 250,000 people or thereabouts. 1970. 70, sorry, yeah, mm. Christmas 1970. Mm. Um, and the chaos, the international chaos that followed it, people not knowing yes. what, they were, what to do, uh, medical teams by the hundred running about trying to find casualties that didn't exist and so on. Um, at the same time, the Bangladesh government gave out an enormous amount of money. Um, I forget, it was lakhs and crores of uh, taka were given out to uh, people who were affected. There's a very strong case that the uh, Bangladesh government had an enormous impact on the welfare of the populations affected by the cyclone and the international community virtually none in the short run. Now, it occurred to me then, and it certainly followed me right through the time ever since, that we run the risk, if we're not very careful, of thinking that international uh, relief is the target for information. I mean, improving Oxfam or Save the Children or DFID or USAID's performance. But I'm not discounting the need to do that, but suggesting that the real target for this information is actually the people who can do something about vulnerability response, which is the people in affected countries. Hmm. And I think as time has gone on, we've seen this. I mean, a lot of countries now, which 30, 40 years ago would have received a lot of international aid, expertise, consultants, and so on, handle their emergencies uh, extraordinarily competently. Hmm. Now, they may still receive some international aid and medical teams and so on. But the real impact, the real change in the world, I think, has been that huge tracts of the world now can more or less do it for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, we used to talk about free fire zones years ago. You remember that? These are countries where anybody can pile in and do what they want, you know? Um, there is no government. The free fire zone has shrunk from probably half the planet... To Somalia. To, look, there's Somalia, except somebody else has got another idea and they shoot you. Um, bits of Central Africa, but even there it's too dangerous for most people. It's virtually disappeared. Now, I think that the, the question on my mind would be, how do we target useful, reliable stuff to nationals in a way that it sticks. Mm. Now, we've had a long experience of this. The last 30 years, I've been doing some very obscure stuff, vulnerability and resilience, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, but economic vulnerability and resilience, how to manage uh, economies so you don't have peaks and troughs, mm. famine prevention, if you like, with some big success. And we've targeted ourselves exclusively to universities in developing countries which where this is relevant and where they want the information. And all operations have been based within governments. Hmm. Okay. Now, you don't get much publicity, but it, yeah. it seems to me this is an area that we should consider. The international community is there. You have to acknowledge it. It won't go away. Frankly, it pays, I suspect, most of the wages in this room. Um, it needs attention, but it's not the primary focus. Yeah. 
of the exercise. Thank you, John. Sally, it's very nice to have Sally Leavesley. I remember Sally, I never haven't seen you for a long time, but I remember after the London bombing, I was driving my car, trying to pick up my daughter who was stranded somewhere in London, and I heard you talking, saying, if you're in a building right now, uh, you should move, don't go outside, move inside, because if you're near the glass, if there's an explosion, so stay in your buildings. I thought, at last, somebody's saying something terrifically important here, so thank you for that, Sally. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. It's, um, it actually was interesting that um, from all of the disaster experience, sometimes it's useful, and particularly sometimes you can talk before government dares to talk, hmm. and that's when it's even more useful. Uh, thinking of the... the the real uh, impact of the the knowledge, the historical knowledge, and the current knowledge of the the brains pool in this room, and also connected sort of through the live streaming we're doing today, I think uh, the, the themes that have come through and the questions that are very important is is how can we maximise this capability really for the benefit of people. And the, I think there are two two things coming have come through with the work that's going on now and picking up sort of John's area. There's there's a huge amount of work which can go into strategic models, and putting it together in an integrated model framework then it gives a tool that can be used. And I think that's where a lot of the data historically and currently with the research that's being done people strategically should start to pull that together into very useful tools. The other, the other thing which is very important, and I think if we take a snapshot on where we are, I would suggest that if we look at the Grenfell Tower in, in the Western setting as an example, it's, it's an appalling example of how much disaster risk and crisis management information has not succeeded. And I'm afraid that's a terrible benchmark for us in, in that failure, that the information and the influence of all this research and knowledge has not got through to the policy makers and to the responders. And that applies both to the, the actual vulnerability of the building and the whole response after it. Yes. It, it was it, sort of watching it all through from all the traditional knowledge that people like I have and you will have had you would have seen it as a catastrophic failure in which a huge number of people died who should not have died. However, if you look at your areas of knowledge, where I think the current uh, research and, and your knowledge is important, there's a window of opportunity around those disasters, and it's probably about two weeks, where policymakers, people around the world are willing to learn so those of you who can communicate and picking up the other sort of response about blogs and media communications, it's in that vital couple of weeks that your material and your influence and your enthusiasm can actually create new policies because people are ready to listen. And it's the immediacy of that information rather than the... the mind-breaking long-term research that you put into journals, it's picking that up in a 20-second media grab that may make all the difference. So I'd suggest that you really look at how you start to present that. Thank you so much. Uh, hello, Jim Kendra from the Disaster Research Center at the, at the University of Delaware. Just to take one quick point, uh, 
to follow up on what you said about the, the content of the journal and the kinds of, of pressures that editorial boards and so forth are under in order to publish a peer-reviewed journal. I think it's worth pointing out that many of our, our junior colleagues in academia are under enormous publications pressures in order to, to grind out publications to boost their, their count. And I think it would be, it would be beneficial if, if our colleagues in, in government and in nonprofit organizations and elsewhere could make common cause with, uh, with academics to push for the value of other forms of communication besides just the peer-reviewed uh, peer articles. Mm -hmm. So to find value and, and actual value in the university system for editorials, for publications like in, in the conversation, for example, yes. um, that you mentioned. That would be enormously beneficial, I think, in shifting the, the, the content of the publication landscape. Right. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Back to you. Thank you, Ian. And thank you. Great first session to you know, start us off for the day. We have allowed for fairly long breaks because we realize that you know, people also have an appetite to reconnect, chat. Many people haven't seen a, you know, each other for a long time, so use the space. Um, we've curtailed the break a little bit, but maybe I'll, I will allow five minutes at the other end. Let's try and get back um, by 20 past 11. So we've got plenty of time to chat and you know, sort of reconnect with all friends, um, and then we get started with the first panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis. And, uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.